tell you what happened this morning. You all witnessed either a bit of sleuth-like research on Micah's part or a minor miracle. We don't know which yet, but we're going to find out. Because see this bookmark right here? That bookmark right there takes us to Psalm 118. Because Psalm 118 plays a very significant part in what we're going to read in Matthew today and even next week. It was even in my mind on the way here that perhaps, knowing that Micah was going to do scripture and prayer, that perhaps I would ask Micah, would you read Psalm 118? Because it's going to play a part in this morning's message. And then when I said to him, are you doing scripture and prayer this morning? And he said, yes. I thought, oh, well, he's prepared, so I won't ask him to do something else that he hasn't had a chance to read in advance and become comfortable with. I won't put him on the spot. And then he ended up exactly where I would have asked him to read anyway, which means either the Spirit of God is working in Micah and I along the same lines, or he has a topical reference Bible, and he saw that it's going to be quoted in chapter 21, and he decided to go find out where that quote came from and simply read that psalm. Which one was it? The latter. The latter. Okay. Here was your opportunity to show us how truly spiritual you are. And you admitted that it was just sleuth-like work. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. We stopped at chapter 20, verse 29 last week. And the next thing that Matthew cites for us could seem on the surface as sort of tangential because Jesus has been talking about the fact that they are on their way to Jerusalem because he's going to die. Verse 17, Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and crucify. And on the third day, he will be raised up again. So Jesus has set his mind. He has set his path for Jerusalem. He knows he's going to Jerusalem. He knows when he has to arrive there. He knows what's going to happen there. And he knows full well that he is about to be tortured. He's about to be punished. He's going to be beaten. He's going to have his beard plucked out. They're going to spit on him. They're going to punch him. They're going to whip him. They're going to parade him through the streets while people mock and jeer and spit. And he's going to carry his instrument of torture on his back to Golgotha where he's going to be crucified. He knows all of that is coming and he has set himself to go do that and he has told his disciples time and time again this is where we're going this is why we're going there and this is what's about to happen and then on the way there Matthew tells us oh and he healed a couple guys which, like I said, could seem tangential, but I think Matthew inserted it right there at that very moment by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it is demonstrating yet again something really, really important, which is that even though Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die, he has not lost one iota of his godhood, of his authority, of his sovereignty, of his power, of his ability to heal, of his ability to call out reality however he wants to call it out, and nevertheless he's on his way to Jerusalem to turn himself over into the hands of the Jews and the Gentiles to be beaten, scourged, and crucified. Far too often people 2,000 years later, looking back on the event of Jesus, try to humanize Jesus instead of leaving him in his divinity. And they say that what happened to him at Jerusalem was a miscarriage of justice because he was a good guy, he was a good teacher, he was a good rabbi, he said good things. And that it's just a shame that his life and his ministry were cut short. They give the impression that he didn't see it coming, that he didn't know, that he's a victim in all this. He is not a victim in any of this. He is a conqueror in all of this. He is accomplishing his death. 
He told his apostles, I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to take it up again, and I have this command from my Father. He is in complete charge from beginning to end, and at no point in the process did he ever lose his godhood, his authority, or his sovereignty. Even as he was on his way to Jerusalem, he stopped and demonstrated yet again that he has all the power. And that gives him the platform, the authority, to then speak to the religious leaders in Jerusalem and condemn them for their lack of understanding of what was going on at that very moment in their eyes. They were witnessing the culmination of human history and prophecy for Israel. He comes into Jerusalem fulfilling prophecy on a cult. He comes in as the people call him son of David, some of the most important nomenclature in the entire Bible, and the Jews are still resisting it. And so Jesus is going to, from that position of authority, condemn them for their lack of understanding that God was bringing to a culmination all these things that had been predicted for hundreds and thousands of years. This is really important stuff. I mean, this is kind of where we're getting toward the very essence, the very heart of what Christianity is about. Christianity is not ultimately about you. It's not about making your life better here and now. It's not ultimately about eschatology and understanding what's going to happen in the world. Christianity is not about having a politic or a worldview Christianity ultimately is about the fact that the very Son of God came to planet Earth and died on behalf of particular people and then raised again to guarantee their eternal security and salvation. That's the very essence of Christianity. Paul argues that without that, without the death and resurrection, Christianity's got nothing. In fact, he even says that we that talk about Christianity are, are liars because we say he raised. We say that he suffered the wrath of God on the behalf of his people. And if he didn't, if he wasn't an actual, real, living human being historically on planet Earth, if he didn't really actually physically die, if he didn't really three days later raise that very same physical body to life again, if he didn't ascend up on high and take that very same body and sit down at the right hand of God, if that didn't happen, then you're still in your sin. And you have nothing to look forward to but judgment. And we are, to use Paul's words then, of all men most miserable. The crucifixion is at the very heart of Christianity, but the crucifixion is at the very heart of all human life. It's the epoch of human events. Nothing else that has ever happened on planet Earth begins to match the importance of the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. If you don't have that... You have nothing but stupid little pieces of protoplasm running around on this planet, endlessly wandering in their foolishness, having absolutely no idea what's awaiting them, and then they're going to die and be judged by a righteous, eternally holy God, and that's the best you get. So live it up, enjoy it now, eat, drink, be merry, because you're about to die and be judged if there's no crucifixion and resurrection. You get all that? So the crucifixion, the resurrection is all under God's absolute divine control. No part of it, no piece of it is random. It is timed perfectly to happen this particular year so that he could die on that particular Passover, so that he could raise up on that particular first fruits, so that 50 days later on that Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would inhabit people. This is all timed out on God's great divine calendar, and these things are coming to play exactly the way God designed them before the foundation of the world. This is important stuff. And... In the midst of all that importance, Jesus stopped and healed two blind men because he had compassion on them and demonstrated his absolute authority. I find this fascinating. I find it fascinating because he could have said, you two be quiet. 
I'm up to important business right now. I'm about to do the most important thing that's ever happened. You guys just deal with it. And he doesn't. He takes pity on them because that's also his character and his nature. So let's read it. As they were going from Jericho, this is verse 29. They were going out from Jericho and a great multitude was following him. Oh, by the way, you know, whenever you see these uh, learning channel documentaries, the real Jesus, the historic Jesus, you know, these kind of things. They always show him with a crowd of about 20 people, tops, 20, 25. Little band of followers on one of these programs. The the script said um, that it was remarkable that he, with his little band of followers, managed to have the kind of influence that he's had on the world. Notice how many times, as we continue reading, Matthew says, huge crowd. This is why the Jews were so concerned. If he had 20, 25 people, they don't care. These kind of false prophets, false messiahs have shown up regularly and gathered 25, 30 people. They're no problem. They're a faction. They're no trouble. The group following Jesus was so big that the leaders in Jerusalem were afraid that when Rome found out, that Rome would send armies in to suppress them again because this uprising was happening. He had... Huge multitudes. As they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, in the midst of this great multitude, two blind men were sitting by the road. Hearing that Jesus was passing by, they cried out saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now we have to take some time and talk about the phrase son of David. Because there are two Old Testament Bits of nomenclature, two names that are assigned to Jesus in the New Testament that hearken back to the Old Testament, that are really powerful messianic names. One of them is Son of Man, because in the book of Daniel, Daniel sees Jesus and calls him one like the Son of Man. And so that name is carried into the New Testament and assigned to Jesus so that we would understand that he was the one that Daniel was predicting, son of man. But the other is son of David. And son of David has this whole historical connection for a Jew. Remember, he's dealing with, heading toward Jerusalem, dealing with Jews. And for them, they know that the Messiah is going to be a direct descendant of David because of a promise that God made to David that we call the Davidic covenant. There is a summation of the Davidic covenant in 1 Chronicles. Keep your finger there in Matthew 21. Turn to 1 Chronicles 17, and let's just read the essentials of what the Davidic covenant is because this is what these people are anticipating when they use the phrase son of David. They're expecting that this is going to be the fulfillment of these things. First Chronicles 17, start in verse 11. First Chronicles 17, a summation of the Davidic covenant. And it shall come about when your days are fulfilled. This is God talking to David that you must go to be with your fathers. Your days are fulfilled. You're going to die. And it will come about that when your days are fulfilled, that you will go to be with your fathers, then I will set up one of your descendants after you, who shall be of your sons. has to be David's posterity. And I will establish his kingdom. But it's going to be different than all the other kingdoms. All the kings of the earth ever have risen up for a little while, have had some authority, some kingdom, and then they've died. And whatever authority, whatever power they have amassed to themselves is passed on to other people. But unlike all those earthly kingdoms, God is going to promise David that his posterity, his son, is going to have an everlasting kingdom that's never going to be defeated. That's the very essence of the Davidic promise. So verse 13 says, I will be his father. He shall be my son. So not just David's son, but God's son. 
And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. That's Saul. God chose King Saul. God established King Saul. And the Spirit of God left King Saul. And he says, your son, my loving kindness will be with him constantly, eternally. I will never remove it from him, verse 14. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Also notice the word house there. Because it doesn't mean I will settle him in the four walls and roof that I live in. That's not what he's talking about. This is that language of the house of David, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. We still use that language to this very day. The Queen of England over there is from the house of Windsor. And so it means a family group. The people who were ruled over collectively are known as the house of whoever their leader is, and God says, I will establish Christ over my house. All the people who belong in the kingdom of God will have Christ as their king, and he will be a direct descendant of David. I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. And according to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Okay, back to Matthew. Now, the Jews know that. The Jews know that among the southern kingdom, the greatest of their kings is David, the man after God's own heart. As we've been reading and studying First and Second Kings and now the Minor Prophets on Wednesday nights, we have seen that in the northern tribes, in Israel, there's been a succession of successively worse kings, one after another after another. In the south, every once in a while, there's a good king. And when there's a good king in the south, he's usually compared to David, that he did the things that David did. In the north, they're all compared to Jeroboam, because Jeroboam is the one who first took Israel into apostasy, so they're all compared to the bad king. And so, in the south, among the Jews, the anticipation is, eventually, there's going to be a direct descendant of David directly connected to his line and his lineage, and he is going to be the Messiah, and he is going to set up a kingdom that is going to be an everlasting kingdom that is going to be the primary kingdom on the planet. So when they call him son of David, they're saying, you're that one. You're the Messiah. Now can you understand why, after the resurrection, his disciples would say to him, so are you going to establish the kingdom now? So are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? You didn't do it before you died, and everybody thought you would. That's what the triumphal entry is all about when he rides into Jerusalem. We're going to read it in a moment. They're trying to coronate him as king, and they're crying out Hosanna to the son of David because they think this is it. This is the turning point. Here it comes. We're about to have our kingdom. And then he dies. And then they're all very disappointed. And they all scatter and they run and they save their own hides. And then he's alive again, which nobody apparently expected. And then he's alive and he shows himself alive by all of these proofs. And so, of course, they would say to him, okay, now? (laughs) Now are you going to do it? You are the son of David. Clearly, you're the Messiah. Clearly, you're the son of God. You are the Christ. Now are you going to do it? And he essentially says, not yet. It's not for you to know the times, the seasons that the father has placed in his own hands. He doesn't say, no, that's not going to happen. He says, just just not yet. So this language, son of David, has a tremendous amount of expectancy and anticipation in it. They're very excited about seeing the son of David. Interesting that two blind men would recognize him as son of David and call him that. And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, I'm reading a little bit between the lines. I'm reading the white spaces here. But I think it was the term son of David that caught Jesus here. This is such a demonstration of faith 
They had to know something about the Davidic promise. They had to know something about the scripture to be calling him that. If the Pharisees had known that, there would have been a different outcome, says Gladys. And she's exactly right, which is why God didn't let them know it. And yet, as we're going to see, Jesus holds them guilty for not knowing it. Their sovereignty. So he stops, verse 33, and he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? You don't think he knew? And yet he stops and he asks so that they request. This is the very essence, by the way, of what prayer is. I don't have a lot of time to talk about this this morning, but I keep trying to point out over and over again that when Jesus gave the model prayer, when he said, when you pray, pray like this, he started out with, our Father who is in heaven, your name is hallowed, hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come right away. Go right for that. The kingdom, because that's real important. And your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. Okay, that's all that kingdom stuff. And then give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Deliver us from evil. And yet, Jesus said to them, in the same context as giving them the prayer, that God knew what they had need of. And that the Father was going to give it to them. So God knows what it is you need and requires that you go ask him. And I think that's what was happening here. They had to admit that he's the one that could open their eyes. He could. He knew what it was. He knew what they wanted. But they also had to ask. So they say to him, Lord, that our eyes would be opened. The NASB, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Look at the next phrase. And moved with compassion. He was busy. He had things to do. He was on his way to go save everybody the Father had given him since before the foundation of the world. He was on his way to accomplish the great divine plan of God and yet had time to be compassionate to two people who had a need. What does this tell you about him, by the way? Because right now, he's busy keeping the planet spinning. And he's busy keeping every neutron and every atom working the way it's supposed to. He's right now responding to all the prayers of everybody on the planet that is praying to him, some of whom are praying in great desperation right now. He's got a lot to do. He's busy right now. He's sitting at the right hand of God, and he's ruling and reigning, and he's judging, and he's bringing history to its culmination. He's got plenty to do, and yet we're told that we can pray that we can talk to him, that we can go and ask him, and this characteristic of his great compassion, he'll stop, he'll bend his ear toward you, he'll listen. They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be open and moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight. Next phrase, and they followed him. Now, I don't allegorize scripture as a rule. I don't believe that scripture is supposed to be allegorized. But earlier, Matthew gave us a really important clue as to what these miracles Jesus did were all about. It was far more than just the compassion or the demonstration of power. It was, in fact, Jesus demonstrating who he was and the authority that he had here, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Go back to chapter 9 for just a second in Matthew. Keep your finger there in Matthew 20. And go to Matthew 9 for a second. We'll just look at the first seven verses. Because Jesus himself told us what the importance of these miracles is. And that there is a deeper meaning to the miracles. There is a purpose to these miracles that demonstrates the authority that he has. Chapter 9, verse 1, they were getting into a boat, and he crossed over, and he came to his own city. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic who was lying on his bed. In other words, a man who couldn't walk. He's paralyzed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven you. That is not what the paralytic was asking for. He wasn't looking to have his sins taken care of. He wanted to walk. Jesus says, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. 
and of course there are scribes there there are Jews there Jesus knows they're there they hear him say it they immediately become upset with him for saying that and behold some of the scribes said to themselves this fellow is blaspheming and Jesus knowing their thoughts I like that phrase said why are you thinking evil in your hearts for what is easier to say which of these two is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk okay think about this rationally for a minute think about it logically if he's a fake if he's a fraud if he's not the son of God which of those two phrases is easier to get away with well obviously your sins are forgiven nobody can check that there's no way for somebody to fact check that and so you can get away with saying that Jeff your sins are forgiven yeah I forgive you and there's no way for anybody to check that instead you're all kind of you know Jim doesn't have the right to do that because you know so it's easier to say the tough one to say to a paralytic is get up and walk that's a hard one to say because you can check it immediately you understand so Jesus creates that comparison that contrast and says which one of these is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins he then said to the paralytic rise take your bed and go home and the paralytic rose took his bed went home so why did Jesus heal the paralytic to, dem to demonstrate who he was to demonstrate that he is the Son of God who can forgive sin so he said here I'll do the harder thing to demonstrate to you that I have the authority to also forgive sin so the miracles are never just a demonstration of dunamis of power it's also a demonstration that he is who he said he is that he is God incarnate and so I think on his way to Jerusalem at this very moment stopping and healing these two blind men has greater significance than just demonstrating his compassion because once they could see they followed him and Matthew includes that they join his followers the Bible draws that parallel a couple of times to our spiritual state that we are naturally blind that our ears are stopped up that our hearts are hardened rocky hearts we have no capacity to understand the things of God we have no ability to follow after God he has to do for us what we can't do for ourselves he has to take out that stony heart and give us a heart of flesh he has to overwhelm us by his spirit he has to open our ears so that we can hear and he has to clear up our eyesight so that we can clearly see the things of God which is why he would walk around using this phrase all the time those that have ears let them hear you give them eyes but they don't see you give them ears they don't hear and so the fact that he had authority to heal physical blindness I think is a demonstration of the fact that he has the ability to heal spiritual blindness the same way that raising a paralytic was a demonstration that he could forgive sin I think the fact that he would heal blind people on his way to die is also a demonstration that he's the way that we get sight he is the way that we understand anything about God he has to give you the ability to do it or you'll never do it he's the only one that can do it and had he not done it for these two men they would have remained in their blindness but two things happened number one they got their physical eyes restored so that they could physically see but number two they followed him and I think that when he opens your eyes you do follow him because you have the ability to see you have the ability to hear and you will follow you got that he used that language so often my sheep hear my voice strangers voice they don't hear they're not going to follow a stranger they hear my voice and they follow me it is right from the healing of these two blind men that we then transition into what we call chapter 21 
but you know that when Matthew was writing this, he was not enumerating his sentences. He was not going along going, and the next thing I want to say, oh, wait, 19. And then we, these numbers were added much later just as a tool so that we could all find the same passage at the same time. And that number 21 gives you the impression that now the subject has changed, but it hasn't. He's on the journey to Jerusalem, and starting in chapter 21, he arrives in Jerusalem. And importantly, Matthew includes that he has just been identified as the son of David, and that's really important, because as he rides into Jerusalem, they are going to call him again son of David. And so God is divinely, very purposefully, lining up these circumstances, these events, Think about Jesus with this huge throng following him, and he's heading toward Jerusalem, and God places these two men by the side of the road on purpose who would cry out, that's the son of David. And then he would heal them, demonstrating that he is the son of David. And then they fall in line and become part of the crowd that is following him. Verse 1, chapter 21. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, They came to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village just opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you will say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. That's authority, by the way. He's on his way into Jerusalem. He hasn't arrived there yet. And he says, when you go into the city, you're going to see a donkey there. And there's going to be a a foal there. How did he know this, by the way? Because it had to be. He has to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. He has to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey that's never been ridden on. That also has a foal, a colt with it. This must happen. And so all of God's eternal power is at work making sure there's a donkey right inside the gate of Jerusalem because he has to satisfy the scripture. And then he says, and if anyone says something to you, well, of course they're going to. You're stealing a donkey. (laughs) You're just going to go in, find a tied donkey, which means he belongs to somebody, and you're going to untie him, and you're going to bring him here to me. And if anyone says something to you, hey, um... Why are you taking the donkey? (laughs) Then you just say to them, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he'll just let you take them. That's authority. That's power from a distance. This is somebody who is in absolute control of the minutia, of the details, as he satisfies this prophecy. Verse 4, now this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And by the way, this is uh, Zechariah 9.9. You can read it. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, lowly, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So there has to be a donkey, and it has to be a donkey that has a baby. And he has to ride in on this donkey that's never been ridden on. Or that prophecy is not true. And by the way, if that prophecy is not true, then none of it's true. And Jesus is going to satisfy that exact scripture. So the disciples went and they did just as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments and he sat on. So that means the donkey didn't have any kind of riding gear or anything on it. They took their cloaks off, they put it over the donkey, and they sat him on it. So verse 8 tells us that most of the multitude then spread their garments into the street, into the road. Others were cutting off branches from the trees, probably palm branches, and they were spreading them in the road and the multitudes going before him and those who followed after him were crying out saying, Hosanna to the son of David and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's from Psalm 118 
which Micah providentially read to us, but we're going to finish the morning by reading it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, which just means praise in the highest. So they recognize that this is now the entry of the king of Israel. The king is going into Jerusalem, which is, by the way, where the king is. That's where King Herod is. Let's just go in there and make him king. This is great. This is ideal. This is perfect for us. Hosanna to the son of David. Treat him like a king. Put him on a donkey that's never been ridden. Throw our cloaks in the street. Cut down palm branches, which, by the way, is the foundation of what is commonly known as Palm Sunday. Growing up a Lutheran, we were very big into Palm Sunday, leading up to Easter. But Palm Sunday only happened on a Sunday if, in fact, he died on a Friday. And we know from the scripture that there's a five-day gap there which is how we end up with the nomenclature of Palm Sunday because none of the disciples tell us that this happened on a Sunday. But if you assume he died on a Friday and you go back five days, you end up on Sunday. Ta-da, Palm Sunday. I don't think he died on a Friday. I personally am convinced he died on a Wednesday because that allowed him to perfectly fulfill each of the feasts. And all that teaching is on our website. You can go look at it. But if that's the case, then Palm Sunday is a church tradition that has been handed down to us through the years, but is not probably historically accurate. What's important here is that the multitudes were going before him, and they were following him, and they were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, Luke's account of this story fills in some blanks and shows us that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were not at all happy about this. But then Jesus began the process First thing he does is go into the temple and cleanse the temple. We'll look at that next week. And then he starts handing out some of the most dramatic condemnations you're going to find from his lips anywhere in the Bible as he starts condemning the leaders in Jerusalem for their lack of understanding of what's going on right in front of them. But turn for a moment over to the book of Luke. Let's take a look at Luke Luke 19, turn there. We're nearly beginning to almost sort of be close to starting to wrap up and not done. Okay, so just hang with me here. We're getting there. I'm working on it. But I want to tie all these threads together because my goal is always to demonstrate how the Bible all works as one big cohesive unit. Everybody there? Luke 19, we'll start at verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up on a hill, which is why throughout the Bible you hear, let's go up to Jerusalem, no matter where they are. We think up and down, north and south. I went down to Alabama. I came up to Tennessee. But whenever you go to Jerusalem, you're going up to Jerusalem. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the city opposite you, in which as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Thus shall you speak, the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Sure enough, there's a colt there. Verse 33, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? Yes, of course they would ask that. They own it. Why are you stealing my donkey? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And then you read nothing about the reaction. Apparently, they went, oh, all right. (laughs) Again, sovereign authority. The Lord has need of it. Good. You try that. Try that sometime. 
Just take something from a neighbor, a car. Just grab something. And then they go, hey, why are you? The Lord has need of it. That's not going to be good. They're calling the cops. Look at the authority again. This is Jesus being in complete control. He said, if anyone asks you, say this, and they'll let you have it. Sure enough, that happens. Absolute authority. Verse 34, they said the Lord has need of it. Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, why would they say that? Because you have this huge multitude entering the city, all crying out that the Son of David is here. But the leaders in Jerusalem have this very tenuous political peace going with Rome, and the last thing they want is an uprising in the streets. Rome was very, very big on squashing riots. They were very big on everybody just staying quiet and staying home. Because anytime you had any kind of a rally going, people were likely to get together and say, you know, if we just form an army, some kind of coalition, we can probably throw off the yoke of Rome. And so Rome squashed these kinds of things. And here this is happening. There is this multitude, this uprising happening in Jerusalem. And so the Pharisees come and say, teacher, rabbi. They're not going to call him son of David. The most they're going to admit is that he's some kind of teacher. Rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. And he answered and said, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. I believe they would have. Now, there are a couple different ways to read this. Some people have said that this is actually a reference to all the people who had died in Jerusalem, who he's going to resurrect, all these allegorical explanations of it. I think he's actually saying these stones of Jerusalem have been here for so long. This is the city of God, and I am right now accomplishing the pinnacle of human experience. I, the son of God, the very son of David, am coming into Jerusalem where I'm going to die and resurrect again. This is such an important epoch in human history that if these people didn't cry out about me the rocks themselves would cry out about me because one way or the other I'm being praised today Mm -hmm. one way or the other I'm getting all the glory today because I am triumphantly entering the city that I am ultimately going to rule the world from and you better praise me for it and the Pharisees on the completely wrong side of that equation said will you tell them to shut up Jesus said, if these were quiet, the rocks would cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, very specific day, very specific moment, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The same God who opens blind eyes is the same God who hides things from people's eyes. And why did he hide this truth from the Pharisees and the leaders in Jerusalem? So that they would kill him. Because he has to die in Jerusalem. And he has to die. They even get together. They even conspire and say, one thing we can't do is kill him on Passover. If we do that, the people who are following him will think he's a martyr. So we can't kill him on Passover. They were dead set determined not to kill him on Passover. But he was the very Lamb of God. He had to die on Passover. So what day did he die? Passover, absolutely, right at Passover, on the cross, right on time, because he is accomplishing all these things that are the satisfaction of all the feasts that Jerusalem had been keeping for 1,400 years, had no idea why they were doing what they were doing, and he was accomplishing it, he was establishing it. Now, here's a little extra bonus stuff that you can chew on later. 
there, uh, I have mentioned before, especially in our eschatology series, a guy named Sir Robert Anderson. Sir Robert Anderson wrote in the late 1800s, and he was responding to the German higher critics who said that Daniel had been, the book of Daniel had been uh, late dated, that it was a forgery, it was a fraud, and they were arguing that Daniel simply couldn't have known the things that Daniel knew because he accurately described the succession of the next four kingdoms that were going to rule over Israel. And he was so phenomenally accurate about it that the critics said he could only know that if he was writing after the fact. And then, of course, Qumran caves, various portions of Daniel are found in the uh, Qumran caves that predate the date that the critics said Daniel had to have been written in any case. This is just God demonstrating time and time again, I'm in complete control here, I know what I'm doing, I have preserved my word. Now, in the book of Daniel, there is this 69 weeks of years, and we've talked about it a lot, that Daniel has predicted 69 weeks of years, and then Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. That's the language that Daniel uses. Sir Robert Anderson figured out what the start date would have been According to his reckoning, for the 69 weeks of years, he says that it was the decree of Artaxerxes that reestablished the original decree from Cyrus that allowed the Israelites to go back, the Jews in particular, go back and build Jerusalem and build the temple. Because Daniel says, from the decree to go do that until Messiah, these 69 weeks of years. So Sir Robert Anderson sat down and did the math, and we've laid all that out in our eschatology series. But... His conclusion, and this is why I told you all that. If you, if you got none of what I just said, just follow this. His conclusion is that the 69 weeks of years to the day culminate this day, the triumphal entry. And then, of course, within that week, Jesus is on the cross. Messiah is cut off, but not for himself, exactly like Daniel predicted. Jesus cries over Jerusalem and says, if you had known in this day. Now you start to get some idea why he said, if these people were quiet, the rocks would cry. There's going to be some kind of praise. There's going to be some kind of announcement here because this is the day. Not just someday. If you, if you understood this day, what was happening, you'd be praising me. You'd be worshiping me. But you don't get it. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank against you and surround you. All that means is that they're going to come up over the walls. They're going to put up banks and you know attack the walls of Jerusalem. And they're going to surround you and they're going to hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't know that God visited you in the flesh. You didn't know that the very Son of God, the Messiah, was right here in your midst. And because of that, 70 AD happened. Titus, the Roman general, comes rushing into Jerusalem and sure enough, not one stone left another, raised the temple, destroyed the city walls, just as Jesus said. Because Israel, one more time, simply didn't understand what God was up to. And why didn't they understand it? Because God withheld their eyes so they wouldn't get it. And he punished them for not getting it. You better be really, really happy and really, really grateful that his grace is sufficient for you and that he opened your eyes to follow and understand these things because without it, not only would you not know a thing, you'd be guilty for not knowing a thing. And he would judge you for not knowing the things he never told you. He is a sovereign God. So he weeps over Jerusalem. The next thing he does, of course, in all the Gospels, at least the three synoptics, is that he cleanses the temple, and we'll look at that next week. But like I promised you, I want to go to Psalm 118, because that is exactly what is quoted there. And Psalm 118 is also going to come up in the next chapter of Matthew, the idea of the stone that the builders rejected. So Psalm 118 plays a very big part in 
the things that Jesus is fulfilling at this particular moment. And Matthew points it out several times. So Psalm 118 is really important, so let's read it. But let's do this. This will be reminiscent of my Lutheran days. Repeatedly in this psalm is the phrase, for his loving kindness is everlasting. David writes it time and time again, keeps repeating it, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, your translation may have a slightly different phrase, but the phrase we're going with is, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Say it together with me. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Okay, I'm going to read the psalm, and every time we get to that phrase, you're all going to read it together with me. All right? For his loving kindness is everlasting. And when you leave here today, even if you don't remember the details of what I talked about, you're going to remember his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, his loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished like the fires of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God. I extol thee, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Don't you love that song? Now, Matthew and Jesus tie that to Jesus. This is a messianic psalm. So all the references to the stone that the builder rejected, to the gate that you have to go through to get to God. And to the one who comes in the name of the Lord, these are all messianic phrases that again demonstrate that God knew way in advance that Christ was going to appear in Jerusalem that day. And on that very day, he was going to be recognized as the son of David. 
And nevertheless, having been recognized as the son of David, nevertheless, they're going to crucify him because that's the plan of God. And nevertheless, despite their attempts to kill him, he's going to rise up again because that's the plan of God. And he's been saying it and saying it and saying it. I'm grateful every time I meet anybody who believes these things. Oh, they are blessed. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.